Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good morning, Ned. Ciao, bello. Ciao, Davide. Where are you? I'm in Ascoli Piceno, where the sun's out, there are light winds from the east, and the temperature is currently 15 degrees, but predicted to rise to 21 by midday. Traffic flowing freely on the A14, both southbound and northbound on the coast, and on the RA11 towards San Benedetto del Tronto. The Giro d'Italia comes to town today, so look out for temporary road closures and a small army of twits in branded clothing. And now, Supertramp. Never Strays Farfalle is brought to you by Chapter 3 and The Roadbook. Chapter 3 was created by David Miller in 2015 with the vision of creating cycling clothing that he would wear as a retired racer. Now they've made cycling kit to meet you wherever your ride takes you. And the good news, it's launching next month. In 2018, a team of dedicated enthusiasts delivered the inaugural edition of The Roadbook Cycling Almanac, an annual publication supplying data, essays and anecdotes from the racing calendar. The Roadbook has become the definitive companion of any serious fan of the sport. Documenting how the season bounced back from the pandemic, the latest 2020 edition has arguably never had such an important place on our bookshelves. Between us, we're giving away four full sets of Chapter 3's new kit, two men's and two women's, as well as four signed copies of the 2020 Roadbook. Plus, four sets of caps and socks with RB Exercise Book and Musette. Bookmark as a secondary prize. All you have to do is head to the episode notes and click the link. How's Italy, Ned? It's it's okay, it's okay. But my question to you is, um, how's Spain? You sound different, David. Well, I sound different because I travelled 600 kilometres to Vittoria Gasteiz in the Basque Country yesterday afternoon brought all the recording equipment apart from the SD card for my recording device. So I'm doing this on my phone now, I'm afraid, Ned. So excuse, sorry, listeners, if the quality is a little bit poorer than normal, that's my fault. <laughs> We're taking it in turns to be at fault for that kind of thing, aren't we? But, uh, uh, I blame my production team. Yeah, <laughs> extensive. Also, yeah, because you're on the road today, so you've kind of, you've left me in the lurch with the tech. After, after yeah. we record this, I've, I've got to edit it, which is like... I know, pressure's on. like... Like big time, because you've been the maestro of that. So a 600 kilometer transfer for you yesterday, you're kind of, are you just, did you do that just out of jealousy because I'm doing it every night and uh, you just wanted to be part of it, you fear of missing out? totally that, Ned. I just thought, you know what, I want to feel like I'm back on the road. I mean, you can see my background. I'm at a a classic bike racing hotel. Um, (laughs) Actually about to go to an event at at nine o'clock and talk about cycling. And so it's, um, yeah, it's just my pseudo attempt at being back on the road. Well, it's pretty convincing. Six hundred kilometres—that's chunky. My my ride, my ride, my drive wasn't too bad uh, yesterday, and we got to this place. Um, so it's a it's a summit finish today. It really is a summit finish. Fifteen point five kilometres. 
that counts. I think that counts as a summit finish, doesn't it? A 15-kilometer climb. Um, um, and we're kind of at the foot of it in Ascoli Picena. But we arrived, David, and it was one of those grand tour. Oh, we got lucky. We got lucky. So we actually got to got to the hotel about 8.30 last night. And Ooh, um, it's, a, it's a proper palazzo in the country and um, with mm. a driveway. And it was just, just beginning to get dark. And we pulled up and... A little kind of avenue of trees leading up to the palazzo, and um, they put those, you know, those um, torches out, you know, along the avenue, and there were kind of staff in um, nicely starched aprons and things, kind of waiting, you know, almost standing to attention as if we were a royal cortege sweeping into the palazzo, you know. Hmm. So it was one of those where you you dump your bags and you're straight into the restaurant, oh, and, lovely, and, and uh, sat down. And um, within seconds, attentive staff were kind of all over you. And it was like, and um, you could either choose the, the carne or the pesce menu, set menus. But they were, you knew they were just going to be good. And of course, we're quite close, close to the sea here. So I instantly went pesce. 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 And the antipasto was, um, so the first course was uh, octopus. You like, you like octopus as well, don't I you? I like octopus, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I wasn't even remotely put off by that. Um, Netflix Oscar winning documentary oh, my about my, my, my best friend the octopus. It didn't put me off at all. I I, yeah. uh, I I went straight for you know the amputated octopus. They have eight. They have eight tentacles. I had two. I had a quarter of an octopus, um, kind of like arranged on my plate in a buttery sauce, and they were char grilled octopus, and they're kind of arranged in a cross on my plate. And uh, just amazing. Then yeah. fish. Uh, we haven't really done the food thing, have we? Too much. But then I had a fish ravioli with gamberini on it for the next course. And then um, uh, what do they call it? Frit, 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 frittata. It? Frittata, frittata kind of thing. You know, like little yeah. fish and chips, basically. So little bits of squid. You know, oh, deep fried in batter with lemon juice like that. And um, and I, I after that, I didn't even bother with the tiramisu, mate. Uh, well, you're all right. I got here and I had a. Um a ham sandwich wrapped in foil waiting in my room. Oh, that's nice, David. Yeah, did you ask you know. did you ask for that as part of your grand tour no, replication? No, of? I didn't. It was they 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 did that for me. It was um really considerate. And there was a salad <laughs> in the fridge. So yeah, that's my um it's the glory days here. You got, yeah. you had a much better time than I did. I did. It was a good. It was a good. I mean, it does mean you know because it's sod's law on a grand tour. It means that the next sort of seven days of travelling are going to be insanely unpleasant, doesn't it? Because that's what happens. But um, I just sweetened you up before the torture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. So what happened yesterday, Ned? I missed it. I was in a car the whole time. There weren't any echelons. No, there weren't that any echelons. Um, but um, that didn't stop me. Um, slightly in the morning before it's a relatively late start yesterday i think they um they rolled rolled off the start line about one o'clock in the afternoon a very very flat stage yesterday as we discussed through uh, starting in modena we discussed all that yesterday Mm. didn't we but um but uh yeah i spent a little bit of the late morning um texting crosswinds dan oh yeah how's crosswinds dan He's, he's really well. He's really happy. And of course, he's on the, he's on the team who have the jersey now. Um, of course. I forgot about that. Demarkey's teammate. Um, but mm. we were texting about something else, actually, as he must have been a bit bored on the bus because he was complaining to me that, uh, so far, he reckoned in the last three days before yesterday, they had, the, this is a typical Dan Martin sort of complaint, actually, isn't it? They, they'd spent 10 hours on the bus in three days. <laughs> That's, That's quite classic. a lot. 
Dan Martin. But it is quite, it's quite Dan, isn't it? It's quite Dan. Yeah. Bless him. He's a, he's a kind Bless of race organiser's, he's a race organiser's nightmare, isn't he? Because he's really... Oh, isn't he? The stuff that he's just always super critical about something. Bless him. <laughs> yeah, good on him. But anyway, you'll find this quite funny. So we were talking about something else and then I sent a, I sent him a message saying, um, saying, what's the situation? What's the intel on the bus? What are you saying as a team? What are you saying about the wind? Because the forecast was, the forecast was for strengthening and consistent cross tailwinds on a very straight course that looked quite exposed and flat, flat territory. And he goes, he goes, oh, I haven't even looked at it yet. So I said, told you, see, told you so, that happens. Exactly. So I'd, I'd, um, I'd, I'd been, I'd do my prep. So I'd been looking at it on windfinder.com. Yeah. So I sent him, mm. I sent him the link to, you know, the bit of the bit, you know, the, the page on windfinder that kind of was giving me my information, just sent him that link. And I think it slightly unsettled him. <laughs> oh no. Cause then he, then he like, he obviously looked at it in great detail cause he kind of blue ticked me. On, on WhatsApp, as if to suggest he'd read the message, yeah? And then, um, you know, it's good for five or ten minutes later, I got another message back saying, yeah, but it's only seven or ten kilometres an hour, isn't it? And actually, I looked back at it and kind of disagreed with him, because I, th- I thought it was 28 kilometres an hour. That's what I was seeing, which is easily <laughs> enough to, you know. Um, but He's anyway. picking I, out the numbers he wants to see. Yeah. And, well, both of us were, actually. Right. He was picking out the low, he was picking out the low numbers and I was scouring it for the high numbers. Um, but I, but actually it didn't happen. But what was quite funny was the, um, funny, what was quite noticeable was actually there were periods of the race where it could have happened. And there was a lot of wariness, as you've often said in commentary, David, the, the, what do you call it? The village fear. There was a lot of village uh, fear. Yeah, the village on. fear because it just strings it all out. Yeah. Before you the on, on the end- hit the wind. Yeah, on the entry where it strings out and on the exit to, to the mm. villages, there was a lot of the big GC teams were kind of very, very wary and really riding very hard on the front. And Dan was very visibly towards the front the whole time. There so you I go. Kind of, Thanks to Ned Bolting. I kind of took, I t- took personal credit for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there were no echelons, once again. There never are. There, there never are, Ned, not in Italy. It's just not a done never, thing. And I, I just don't were. know why. And it's, it's yeah. kind of funny because everyone always talks about Spain and Belgium and France and different countries as Spain always gets this. No one really ever talks about the fact that Spain is probably the, the most prolific crosswinds in any bike racing. And every world, so there's some pretty horrendous crosswinds. Tour de France, it happens mm, once every two years, I suppose. Obviously in Belgium, it happens because it's the classics in March and that's what those races are. But yeah, it's, it's a weird one because Italy... Uh, as I've said before, I've just, I personally have never experienced an echelon in Italy in, in all my years racing. And it's almost, I, I don't know whether that's then, that's because that's happened to everybody. And it's just not a culture of it. Um, that the peloton is never that interested. Um, I mean, cl- granted, the climatic conditions perhaps aren't, aren't there, but at the same time, it's just, it goes to show how much the peloton is its own self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, you know, if it's a stage where, it's because everybody's just written off for the fact that's the Giro, it's no echelons. It kind of almost neutralizes itself. But I don't know, that's a weird theory. But because I, could, I just find it no, hard think, to believe that there isn't any crossroads. Yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I, was talk, I was talking about this phenomenon with my co-commentator, with Matt Stevens out here. And Matt, Matt was saying that he remembers, he did a fair bit of racing in Italy, and he remembers the odd occasions where the conditions were right. But the bunch never split. He, he, remembers, he remembers days when um, it was all strung out on the left-hand side of the road, single file, 
as if it were about to, but it actually didn't yeah. split. It was just it was just hard and single file sort of thing. But no team was going about doing the damage. That's and because nobody really wants it. A, nobody really wants it. And B, we were thinking we were thinking about this yesterday. You think which well, which team who's going to do it and with which mm. riders? And then you look at the you look at the team lineups, and mm. you think, well, the, where's the where are the guys? Uh, where's the where's where's Tim de Klerk? Where's Stenek, where where's Denek Stubar? And of yeah. course, it's all just skinny mountain dudes, isn't it? You know, it's and because like, the, the Giro is at the end of the classic season, so all of those those weapons. Uh, they're, they're, yeah, they're having their break. Fi- they might come, fi- some of them might have the Tour de France. A lot of them go to the World Tour to train, to get pre- ready for the winter, to get ready for the, the spring classics again. So actually, this is the only Grand Tour where you don't get all the classics riders because they've just finished their, their first part of the season. There you go, Ned. You found it. Yeah. So it's riders. You know, I was talking the other day about um, Bora Hansgrohe's <coughs> young rider, Giovanni um, mm. uh, Elotti. And it's mm. riders like him who yeah. don't necessarily have the sustained horsepower on the flat to do that kind of job and also probably don't know how to, you know, like yeah. don't, know how, don't, don't, don't know what to do to do it. You know, don't know, yeah. have that instinctive kind of through and off in an echelon of faucet and all that sort of thing. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Philippe Gilbert's in Monaco. He's not in Italy. He never comes to Italy. Yeah. He's in Monaco. Um, it's true. It's yeah, true. So well, we there you go. We solved that conundrum. That's good. One solved thing the, down. One thing um, down. Yeah. 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 What else happened there? I'm just looking through well, our, our plans. Well, More in the Guelphs and Ghibellines. Yeah. So, Maserati. Yeah. So, yes. if you if you didn't listen to yesterday's, the, the Ghibellines were the people, the old inhabitants in, this, in the 14th century. And earlier than that, in the early part of the... What century? What millennium is that? I can't... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, my brain's not working this morning. Anyway, in the 14th century and, and before that, the Ghibellines were the inhabitants of Modena. And they went to war with the Guelphs from... Bologna. Now, is there a connection, do you think, between the Maserati? Do Maserati have a car? Why do I remember this? Called the Ghibli. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, they do. And you know what I think it is? Because the Ghibli's a wind as well, isn't it? Oh. And I think that a oh. lot of the Maserati cars back in the days were named after winds. Shamal. They're a Shamal oh. as well, I think. Um, oh. Actually, no, and you know what else? Not, not just that Maserati did. But um, also Campagnolo, the disc wheels. You had the Ghibli disc wheel. Ghibli disc wheel. You had the so Shamal Cam- deep section wheels. Is Campagnolo from that part of the world as well, do you think? From, mm, from, I don't, f- maybe. From Emilia-Romagna. Might be. Possibly. But why, would, why would the winds be called after that then? Ghibli's a wind, is it in North Africa? North oh. African wind. So do you think it's got nothing to do with the fact that the, the I don't Ghibli think the Maserati people, I don't the, think Ghib- the Ghibli those, people were from but, but I don't know a reference they, to the original people from, from Modena no, well maybe maybe, maybe they named the winds after those people hmm. Hmm. I don't know I think this is a floating fact that we're going to have to find some, do some research on or get somebody to, to fill yeah, us in on because as far as I know the Maseratis were named after winds then that's then uh, backed up by the fact Campagnolo also named a disc wheel which obviously is there for the wind called the Ghibli they also had yeah. deep section wheels called the Shamals, which is also a wind. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it was a good punt at something there, Ned. But ultimately... But no, I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, I like the way we use our listenership as Google, because we just can't be yeah. bothered to Google it ourselves. Um, yeah. Lap wings has been quite helpful with that, haven't they? Um, and, just, and now it's, it's like, Ghibli. Um, 
It's the wisdom of crowds. Yeah, we're crowd. Right, we're no, crowd it's just crowdsourcing our <laughs> crowdsourcing our facts. <laughs> very, um, very good. Crowdsourcing our truth. I saw the horrendous actually. I saw oh, on Twitter this morning the yeah. horrendous crash where it was just one of those. Lander and um, Dombrowski, etc. Horrible. But it, yeah. What did it just hit a traffic island? Yeah, it was. It was a. It was a little central. What do you call it? A little. Se- yeah, traffic island, right in the middle of. It was mm. in the final five k, and there was a. Yeah, there was a traffic island in the middle. It was, bat- you know, it had a crash mat against the the road sign, perfectly you know, adequate crash mat and perfectly visible bright orange, and it had a marshal, a flag, pen- a pennant marshal standing mm-hmm. about. Oh, a couple of three meters in front and with a whistle and a pennant and doing exactly what you would expect them to do perf- in the perfect position. But the bunch was flying as it would do at that point, And it was very thick. There was a lot of riders. And Dombrowski was on the wheel of a couple of riders who saw it quite late, I think. And mm. poor old Joe Dombrowski saw it too late, tried to um, change from one side to the other and actually just caught the marshal full on. I mean, clattered into the marshal, spun spun the poor fellow around, dumping him on the ground, and uh, and in the process just threw himself over his handlebars and onto the road. And um, he's wearing the blue jersey, the mountains jersey. It was his thirtieth birthday yesterday, Joe. No, and yeah, thirtieth birthday yesterday. And I kind of, you know, straight away on impact, you knew, you knew that that was it. Um, it, it looked it looked like a break, and I think it has been confirmed now, hasn't it, as a bro- as a break. Um, uh, but m- just as kind of like, unfortunately as that, Mika Landa, um, had no choice but to, uh, be unseated by Joe Dombrowski. So he rode into Dombrowski's crash and, uh, he was hurt even more badly than, uh, yeah, Dombrowski. he went down really bad. Huh? He went down really hard and you knew he wasn't getting up Mika Landa. And he looked so good on the previous day into Sesta. Excellent. And it's a big, big shame, actually. There was, there was a, what's he done? He's broken three ribs or two ribs, I think, and he's broken a collarbone. Yeah. Um, and it, and it looked, it looked like he'd done all of those bones and if not more, he was in agony. Oh, so yeah. it's a shame. Barry McLaren then. They they sent you know most of the team back to wait for him to just to, on the off chance he could remount and get back on and then you know kind of ten minutes after the end of the race a quartet of of the domestiques kind of rode stern faced over the line together very slowly mm. and you knew you knew that their very promising looking Giro had just rebooted I mean that they they did have two big hitters riding really well and they were full of confidence they've got a very good team here um, but now they've it's all about Peo Bilbao and they've lost Michael Lander. Um, which is a shame because I think he was, it looked like he would, he was going very well and, you know, it might have been a, a, a bit of a triumph for him, uh, this race. So that's, that's a big shame. And Pavel Sivakov was the other one in a, in another crash, um, a few minutes before that one, uh, who hurt himself quite badly, but he rides on. He, uh, touched the wheel of a teammate, I think Benal actually, and, um, Benal stayed up. Did absolutely fine. Sivakov actually was kind of pushed into the side of the road and I think unseated by a branch of a tree that was hanging oh, into God. the road. <clears throat> yeah. And um, so he, he has a lot of unluck, doesn't he, Pavel Sivakov? Yes. And actually, he's out, out so, of the GC. Yeah. I mean, so does Dombrowski in the past. And, and even Lander's not had a, the best run through his career of incidents. As you say, it's such a shame because... Normally, Lander doesn't look that good at the beginning of a Grand Tour. So to have him flying like he was in that first overhill finish um was pretty amazing so it is a shame when you see guys like that go go out in the first week before they've even had a chance to to really light up because i do genuinely think lander would have been 
a serious protagonist for for taking the overall here. So that's yeah. a shame. But it's but it's a grand tour, and it you know statistically it happens, doesn't it? One or two of the GC riders go home after in the first yeah. week because of incidents like this. It almost invariably happens. Normally, it's Richie Port at the Tour de France, um, but. But standard, but um, yesterday it was, it was Mikkel Lander. But it does happen, doesn't it? And it happens particularly in the first week. Yeah. And if you, I suppose, um, if you're going to be if you're going to be hyper, hyper, hyper critical, and it seems really unfair to even say this on the day after Mikkel Lander's gone home. Um, there's a reason why you're at the front, right? Yeah. Are you minimise it. Yeah, yeah, it's just minimising the risk, isn't it? If you've got 200 riders or whatever it is. If you're in 200, 200, the 200th position, you've got 199 things that could go wrong in front of you. If you're in 20th position, you've got 19 things that can go wrong in front of you. So it's just statistics, isn't it? It's just probability. So, I mean, um, yeah, it makes sense. Plus, it, also, it's not just that. There's your simplicity of having less people in front of you at the front and less things that could go wrong. You also don't have that concertina and whiplash effect, which often often near the back, around the middle back, you've got riders who are a bit more tired, not quite as lucid, or just don't really care that much, who will make mistakes. Generally, the riders up the front are more concentrated, they're thinking clearer, they're, they're trying harder, and it's just safer. Um, so yeah, the rule of thumb is to just be at the front all the time. And that in itself is a, it's quite an art form, because to be able to do it without using up energy... You see the really good guys, they just float around up there. They just never, they're always in, because that's the other thing as well. To stay at the front, you've always got to be moving forward. You kind of, you're in constant flow. It's like, I don't know how you describe it, sort of browning motion where you're just constantly moving up, constantly moving up, which is quite tiring mentally. It's not as if you just get up there and sit there and just hold your position. It's just constant flow. So, but if you get good at it, you just, you're just permanently in that, that state of flux. And that's how you stay at the front. It's this pretty cool art form once you've got it, but not many riders can do it well. Uh, there are riders who just never crash, aren't there? You know, f- f- mm. uh, and Sagan never crashes. Right? No, it's very rare. I can't think of a Sagan crash. And I, I, mean, I was no. We were once we crashed in oh, really? the Bianchi. Well, yeah. Tell us about and that. It was, just, it was just on a dirt thing, and I think he was hopping and just lost control. He went right down in front of me, and somehow I stayed up, but that's the only time I've seen him crash. Um, oh, he crashed in Flanders once, didn't he? Heavily. Do you uh, remember that's that? That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's when yeah. he was brought down, and Roubaix, when he was brought down by some, a fan. Was it, was it Roubaix? Yeah. yeah it was Roubaix, crash. I think. But it's yeah. pretty rare. And I was, I was watching him yesterday with his, with, his, with his team, when his team went onto the front. And um, he's just, he does this thing. It's kind of like, it's really co- I think it's really cool. But it must also <clears> sli- slightly baffle his team, where he'll kind of like call the shots and get his team on the front um, it, was, it was when we thought it might split with crosswinds and he put Cesare Benedetti and Maciej Bodnar and Daniel Oss kind of all lined out on the front and for a while he was just sitting in fourth wheel but then he just he kind of just pulls off his own team doesn't he and then just goes and does his own thing for a little bit picks another wheel goes, goes to another team chills out just goes over there for a bit and you can see his team going what? why? <laughs> why is he over there? Peter concentrate <laughs> Yeah, but he he does that, doesn't he? More than yeah. a lot of other riders. He has that kind of tendency just to flick around and kind of, you know, maybe gets bored, you know. Oh, mm. I see oh, Daniel Oz. Sure. Daniel Oz, I see so much of him. I'm going to go over there and see what Jasper de Boost's backside looks like for a bit. Um, just playing. He's just, just constantly playing. playing. Right? Did you playing. see Did you um, see the sprint, by the way, David? No, I didn't. I haven't seen anything. Wow. Yes. So, I mean, I saw um, Caleb one. How, how was fast. it? Was it a proper lead out? And... He did. He did something. No, he no. It was kind of like it was brilliant because it wasn't a proper lead out because he he 
he got through his <clears throat> Roger Kluger didn't go deep you know he's kind of the, normally the penultimate lead out man uh, before Jasper did boost he didn't go quite f- deep enough into the stage and pulled off quite early to, to, to kind of expose Jasper de Boost with, a, with two kilometres to go. And Caleb found himself in second place. Um, and as soon as he sensed that de Boost could no longer do much more and was about to sort of blow up with about 1,400 metres to go, um, Caleb just took this bit, made this big spontaneous call. I actually thought he'd punctured from the helicopter shot. He just, like, he just exited the line and dropped back at speed as if he'd had a mechanical, you know, mm. losing kind of instantly on the left, losing 10 places. But then you just saw, just as he went out of the shot, the, the helicopter shot, you saw him just flick back in onto the wheel of Tim Malia, um, mm. who was, you know, right the way back down the line. But it was really smart from Ewan because the final kilometre, final, final 900 metres were dead straight, slightly rising and into a, into a pretty strong headwind. So it was oh, one wow. of those sprints. So he just thought, okay, I'm going to go right back to win this, you know. And, it, um, and, and he, and he did. That's super cool. It's super yeah. cool. It's super cool. And he yeah. left it really late and he kind of broke Giacomo Nizzolo's heart once more. And Nizzolo thought he'd won. We thought he'd won. Ewan actually got past him in the final 10 metres of the sprint. <sighs> and, and to win by half. Fine. Tough, really. But even then, he won by half a bike length. He was so oh, much wow. faster in, in, the final, in the final 10 metres. So it's hugely <laughs> impressive from Ewan. Yes. Yes. Um, tourism stuff, Ned? Tourism stuff. What about yeah, well, the Fasasi Caves? Oh, mate. What is this mate. you talk of, these caves? Ah, uh, the fond memory from five years ago. This is the stage start today. Starts in some caves. I mean, it doesn't. It'll start outside some caves. Um, but uh, but I'm sure we'll see the, the, the shots of the inside of the Frasasi Caves um, <clears throat> up in the hills uh, in Marche. In the region. <clears throat> we're in the, we're in the uh, region of Marche now. We dropped out of Emilia-Romagna. And... There was a stage of the 2016 edition of Tirreno Adriatico, which is a race that happens in early March. And the weather uh, can yeah, be... Yeah, mid-March. Yeah, mid, mid to early March. The weather can be a little bit... Because that's um, that time of year, isn't it? And it always has... Mid-March. Mid-March in Marche. Um, and... Terreno Adriatico, as you know, David, always has one quite high mountain, one medium, has a big summit finish. Mm-hmm. Normally stage six, something like that, is, a, is a, the big GC decisive day and it'll, it'll, go up some big, it'll go up to a ski station normally up in the Apennines. And um, I can't remember what it was scheduled to do in 2016, but the night before uh, stage six, uh, they cancelled it. They, it was just... Um, I, remember, I remember the next day... Vincenzo Nibali, who was in that edition of that race, he was moaning about the cancellation of the stage, saying, "Ah, eh, we should have, we should, we should race." Bye. You know, like, uh, bye, 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 bye. Um, but actually, uh, I think one of the teams the following day, so they had a day off. They didn't put any kind of race on that day. You know, everyone just everyone had a rest day in the middle of Tirreno Adriatico. One of the teams actually rode some reconnaissance up to the climb, and the snow was kind of meters thick and there's no way they could have cleared the roads so it's just unpleasant weather we all had the day off and what did we do we went to the hotel lobby kind of casually leafed through the tourism um leaflets that you get in hotel lobbies of italian hotels and found that we were very close to the frassasi the grotti di frassasi and uh myself and our producer massimiliano adamo and dan lloyd from gcn eurosport um 
before his GCN Eurosport incarnation. So not wearing a GCN Eurosport t-shirt, in other words, <laughs> which, <laughs> which he kind of sleeps in these days, I think. Um, he, Massimiliano, so Massi, uh, Dan and myself went to visit the, uh, the caves and they are one of the wonders of the world. And one of the most awe-inspiring things is you, you kind of go down, it's a bit like tunneling into the pyramids. You know, you go down this access road that's been drilled into the rock and you walk mm. down and then suddenly you turn a corner and you're in the first chamber, right? The first chamber deep underground I think I've got this right, is so big that you could, you could actually put Notre Dame Cathedral inside it. Whoa. Yeah. That is big. So it's just... It is stunning. It's mind-blowingly huge. Probably didn't give you a sense of the scale. But my, f- my favourite story about it is nobody knew the caves existed until 1971 when a couple of kids, were, pl- couple of kids were playing um, on the hillside obviously above this chamber, you know, totally unaware of what was beneath them. And they found a, a hole in the, in the, in the hill. <laughs> and mm. out of curiosity, they started throwing stones down it to see when they heard the, the kind of stone hit the ground, you know. And so they were throwing stones down. You imagine like, chuck it down like that. Count to one, two, three, four, ping. Imagine how frightening that would be. Like, what? Step back. Whoa. Yeah. Step back from the well, hole. Step back from the hole. Step back from the hole sort of thing. So they kind of ran back down to the village and went, we think we found something, you know. And then a bunch of geologists went up there and they went, ooh, and they opened oh, wow. it up. And the, huh. the stalactites and the stalagmites are meters tall. I mean, just. And, and, and bear in mind, they grow, don't they? It's something like a centimeter per century yeah (laughs) you know because they form don't they from the from the droplets of water that land on the same spot exactly mathematically the same time you know so droplet one wait droplet two and each droplet contains the tiniest amount of of um limestone is it Mm, and so it's like floating fact floating fact um and uh, you know that drops a bit of sediment there and then another one lands and it's just a tiny little bit more you wait long enough and you've got this colossal structure. Just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Super no photography cool. is allowed. No photography really? is allowed. I'm down there. But it's purely a money-making exercise. It's absolutely hilarious. They come up with some pseudo-scientific reason for it would damage the stalactites or stalagmites. Would it, though? It's just to stop the TikTok generation right. coming in. Would it, though? So everyone's got their smartphones itching to take photographs of the amaz- most amazing thing they've ever seen. Dan Lloyd was just sneaking off the back of our little group and actually just around the corner, just taking his own pictures. <laughs> but w- what they actually do is they, you get halfway around this guided tour through these chambers and then they say, so now is the official photography position. We charge you five euros. <laughs> oh, seriously? Yeah. So they just, they just, they just actually, you can, awesome. ta- you can take photographs, but you have to give them five euros for the right to take oh, photographs. That's awesome. I love it. So it's that's not the only starts today. Yeah. It's not the only kind of a monetization operation at the Grotti di Frasasi either. I'm sure it isn't. Because when we came out of the caves, I thought, I want a souvenir. I want to, you know, I like on the Tour de France, quite like picking up little souvenirs. Little ornaments. Little ornaments. Um, So I went to the souvenir shop thinking I want a little model cave or something like that. A little model stalactite, something like that for maybe 10 euros. 
I'm looking around and I thought I saw saw an apron, you know, cooking apron, um, a Benito Mussolini one. Oh, perfect! I thought that's that's perfect. It's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird, isn't it? Punchy, maybe not a Benito Mussolini. A little bit too soon, still. A bit too soon. So yeah, it's unusual, isn't it? We have a slightly different take on Benito Mussolini at home, but yeah, I didn't fancy it ultimately. I thought maybe you get a mug. So I looked at the selection yeah. of mugs available, and there were, again, I noted quite a lot of Benito Mussolini, <laughs> Benito Mussolini <laughs> mugs. Um, I was kind of putting them to one side, and then I spotted another mug, and I kind of turned it round, and it it had um, two names on it. Actually, it had Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. Hmm. Definitely too soon. Unusual. Uh, I, I I I left it on the the official the official Grotti di Frantasi tourism merchandise stand, and I I walked away. <laughs> That is super weird. Unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah. So, so it's mountain day today. Yeah, it's a um, it's a mountain day. It's a mountain day. I think the weather forecast is a, looks much better. Um, the, the wind's died down. It's it's a bit warmer. It's much warmer actually. So yeah, it should be a bit more of a more of a thing. Um, and I expect. Don't know why I expect really. I expect Egan Bernal to rip it up, to be perfectly honest. I think. Do you reckon? Do you reckon Bernal's going to do it? That'd be pretty cool. See him back. I think he, it feels like he's straining at the leash, actually. Oh, you know, wow. I, okay. Simon Yates. Simon, Simon, Simon Yates looks like he's playing. Like, to me, he's so invisible. It's, it, he's the most invisible rider on the race. You know, mm. there, are, there, are, there are several members of the Androingio Catali uh, team who are less visible than Simon. No, so more visible than Simon Yates. You know, there are, there are mm. Bardiani riders who you've seen more often than Simon Yates. He's just been hiding. And I think it's just, he's playing the absolute opposite card from what he played in 2018, where at this stage in the race, he was just tearing up the climbs, wasn't he? Oh, winning stages. Ripping it to pieces, wasn't he? Ripping, ripping it to pieces. And then of course he blew up in the final week. So I think he's just, I, I, I don't know, I'm guessing here on his behalf, <laughs> but I think he's just, I think he's just well, so what conscious. What about Coswin's Dan? How's he doing? Well, he's doing okay. I mean, he, he, you'll know this, David, being his long-term teammate, but I think he really suffers in the cold, right, in the wet, or mm, doesn't like doesn't it. Doesn't like partic- it so much. <clears throat> doesn't like it particularly. So, so that Sestola day, two days ago, um, uh, he lost a little bit of time. Let me just get, hold on, just, hold, two seconds while I just get my notes. Hold on. What's happened? Sorry. I did a I did a virtual GC note. I noted it. I mean, nothing changed in the GC apart from Joe Dombrowski um, exiting the race and Mikael Lander yesterday. So you have to remove those names, unfortunately, from the GC. But I I, I kind of I, I took out all the guys you'd expect to fall away and did that kind of GC standings thing amongst the hitters. And actually, the kind of virtual leader of the GC favourites at the moment is Alexander Vlasov. Um, huh. He's, if you like, on zero seconds. Then uh, Evenepoel is just four seconds off him. Oh, Evenepoel, Remco. Remco, <laughs> I love it. You just wanted to say that, didn't you? You just want to say I did. Remco. Remco. Yeah. He's so cool. He's just the coolest kid. In anyway, Hugh Carthy is um, third on GC uh, at 14 seconds in that sense. Bernal, 15 seconds. Davide Formolo. Davide Formolo is the best Italian uh, for UAE Team Emirates, who can't do a sprint lead out, by the way, but that's another story. Um, he's 20 seconds. Lander was 25 seconds, but he's gone. Simon Yates is 25 seconds. Ciccone 
is the best of the um of the Trek Segafredo riders. He's at 32 seconds. Bardet, 39. Pozzaviva, 41. Crosswind stand, 44. And Peo Bilbao, who's now the, the leader of um, McLaren. What's it called? Not McLaren. Bahrain Victorious. He's uh, at 48 seconds. And Nibbles, 51. And do you know what, David? Mark Soler is at 52 seconds. What do you read into that? I read into that that um, perhaps he's not going to win the Giro. So I certainly it's a little bit of evidence that would suggest he might not. Um, Jai Hindley, 56. Uh, two more riders to mention. Um, Emmanuel Buchmann has ghosted his way without anyone noticing, almost out of contention, <laughs> to 105. <laughs> He's ghosting backwards. <laughs> He's ghosted backwards this time. And um, poor George Bennett, who had a terrible day, really hard day <clears throat> uh, to Sestola, is at 146. So Bennett's kind of in that betwixt and between, mm, am I, am I mm. still a GC rider? And one, one more bad day. But I think the story of today, David, just to finish on, I think it's going to be really, I'm really looking forward to seeing whether or not Alessandro De Marchi, a la Thomas Vukler in 2004, um, can, can hold on to the jersey because I think it's conceivable. Yeah. He's got, uh, what is it, 128 or something to the Vlasovs of the world. So, you know, he's going to try and live with the group of favourites on the climb for as long as he can. It's a... Yeah. It's a 15.5 kilometer climb, but it's pretty steady. It's pretty steady for the first yeah, 10 so kilometers. 10, yeah, it's just got um, like a brief moment at 10%, hasn't it? Apart from yeah. that, it's, um, it's okay. Last, fi- I mean, last, five kilometers are, <laughs> last five kilometers are punchy though, aren't they? They're kind of 8%, eight, eight, eight percent Yeah, it's 15 in total, right? So it's like by that point, like I guess when that 10K, 10% ramp starts about two thirds in, after that it gets pretty grippy for want of a better term. Yeah. Um, yeah. and what's the weather okay yeah it's, it's fine at the moment looks fine yeah, okay. yeah. Well, there you go. so yeah I think the story of the day for me the story of the day will be Demarkey and the pink jersey um, and, and will he hold on and that um, that is your that's your morning so are you back home tomorrow oh, today David? today today just in this talk this morning and then um, crikey 600 kilometers yeah I know it's okay somebody else is driving me so that's fine okay I just sit oh. there and contemplate life okay i guess Re- um, you, do you think you'll yeah. reach any conclusions about life or not or... i didn't yesterday but <laughs> maybe yesterday so <laughs> maybe today will be better ned maybe let's see be i mean I, I, yesterday right. was like the warm-up the warm-up car drive thinking session today's the day okay. i'm going to sort it all out all right okay See you, Ned. Good, good, good luck with your little. Good luck with your PowerPoint or whatever you're going to do. Good luck with that. Um, yeah, it's fine. And, uh, it's all right. Speak all right. from the heart. Okay. <laughs> okay. Speak from the heart. All right. Speak <laughs> to you tomorrow. Bye, Cheers, Ned. David. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.